Well, good morning. So I was getting ready this morning, and I look in the mirror, and you know what the first thought in my mind was? Governor Lee Drapus. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Mr. Red-Vested Guy himself. You know, uh, that idea of this little tubular, mushy, squishy, eating machine that just chomps away with these mandibles, all these leaves, wherever it can find it, just never stops eating, 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 turning into this exoskeletal thing of beauty that can just fly literally thousands of miles and no longer eats, but only gets its nutrients through drinking through this long straw out of its mouth. I, 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 was, I, I was just thinking, how does that thing change like that? How does it go through this metamorphosis? So I did what I always do. I do a little research. And of course, when I'm trying to find scientific research, I have my favorite go-to place. And those of you who have heard me uh, over the years know where my favorite go-to science place is, and that would be National Geographic. So I go on the National Geographic site, and I do a little Google search on uh, you know, caterpillar turning into a monarch butterfly, and uh, I just start reading. And I am absolutely fascinated by the articles that I'm reading about how that change takes place. And yet when I got done, I thought, I'm still not totally sure how that actually happens. And honestly, I think scientists aren't totally sure how this actually happens. But that caterpillar hangs upside down on that twig, and it goes into this thing called a pupa or a chrysalis, and that caterpillar remove, you know, kind of comes out of its skin, and then it's inside that pupa, and it turns into literally like a murky soup. But the soup has chunks in it. And that those chunks are actually in the soup, at the exact right place where this little chunk divides and those cells all of a sudden become antenna. And this little chunk behind it has these two little bulbs that all of a sudden becomes eyeballs. And this long gooby chunk in the middle hardens and becomes the body. And these six little chunks, three on each side, become the legs, and these on the outside form into these wings that are kind of crammed inside that pupa now, and then it kind of makes its way out, and fluid flows through those wings, and then all of a sudden, voila! A butterfly. So now you and I 
know about as much as what I think science knows about how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly in 10 to 14 short little days. It's actually, it's, here, let me, let me explain it, actually. Let me, let me explain how this actually happens. God. Unexplainable apart from God. This complete metamorphosis. And what I find fascinating is this doesn't just happen with monarch butterflies or, quite honestly, all insects go from this little wormy thing into an insect. Um, actually, I see this in human beings. I mean, not like physical transformation, but, and of course, I see that too. You know, somebody gets all buffed up or something or loses a lot of weight or whatever. I see that too, but I'm talking about like transformation of their lives. You know, like transformation, total change of their priorities in life, or total change in, in their attitudes, or total change in the way that they behave. I've seen it over and over again. I mean, someone who's addicted becomes free. Someone who has anger issues becoming soft and loving and under control. Marriages that seem to be crumbling all of a sudden become strong, solid. People who clearly wrestle with depression all of a sudden have a sense of peace and confidence and joy. I see it over and over again, these total transformations. And in our day, uh, the belief is that there are many paths in order to get healthy in life. I mean, you know, there are a lot of different ways to fight addictions. There are a lot of different ways to, you know, have a healthy marriage or whatever it is. There, people can overcome obstacles in a lot of different ways. And yet when I talk about transformation, I'm talking about a transformation of the heart. I'm talking about a transformation of the soul or the spirit inside of a person where it's not just about life looks differently on the outside, but there is actually this true connection, this true relationship with God, this personal relationship, and that these changes that we see happening in people actually grow out of a relationship with the creator of the universe, grow out of this relationship with him. Now, for many Christians... It's great to talk about. For many Christians, it's a wonderful theory that we want to experience. But I'm afraid that for many, it's easier to talk about than to actually experience. And to live rightly before the Lord is something that probably most all of us in here desire to do. And when we sit in a room like this, well lit and all together, we say, yeah, I'm all in. I want, I want that. I want to walk closely with the Lord. I, I want to have the junk in my life kind of be set aside. And then we, then we go and we're by ourselves, you know. And uh, temptation grabs us. Or things pull us aside. Or, or uh, the attitudes, those old, those old attitudes, those, that heart of ours uh, just seems to get the best of us. So how do we do it? How do we actually go through a a metamorphosis. How, how do we actually truly change? Well, over the next several weeks, we are going to 
address this by focusing on the leading section of the entire Bible that talks about how God wants to bring about transformation in our lives. We will be covering Romans chapter 6 through Romans chapter 8, and it will bring us right up to the week before Easter. So, we've got a lot of ground to cover over these weeks. Let's begin by getting one thing straight. Let me give you an overarching truth that we just have to bank on. And that is, we don't change ourselves. God changes us. That's just something that we need to get straight. It's God who brings about the change. So we start with the metamorphosis of Christ. If you have your Bibles handy, you can go to Romans chapter 6. We'll begin reading right there at the very first verse. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible handy, you'll see that we have the scriptures up here on the screen. It begins this way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, by the way, when I start there, it doesn't it just sound like we were just plopped right down in the middle of something? Like what in the world has... Paul been talking about that he asks these questions. Well, we have to realize that at the end of chapter 5, Paul just got done arguing and making the clear statement that, you know, sin increases in our life, especially when we get to know what the Bible teaches about sin. You, Oh, well, I've got more sin in my life than I thought I had previously because, you know, it's all spelled out right here. And Paul just got done saying that when, where sin increases, God's grace, which is his goodness to us, even though we don't deserve it, God's grace increases all the more. So what he just got done saying is you cannot out-sin the grace of God. God's grace covers all sin. And so the questions that he raises then to believers who have been believers for a while by the time he writes Romans is so what shall we say? Well, if, if grace is greater than the greatest of our sins and any sin that we commit, so a logical question is, so should we just go on sinning then? And he says, may it never be. You know, it means we shouldn't stop growing in our relationship with the Lord. The thing that gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord is that sin. And if we want to grow in that relationship, if we want this transformation to happen that he desires to have happen in our lives, then we shouldn't continue on in sin. Here's how this transformation works. Here's how we get involved in God doing this transformation in our lives. First of all, we dwell, we must dwell on the finality of his death, of the death of Jesus. Focus on the death of Jesus and the finality of it. And then secondly, we have to dwell on the newness of his life, the newness that Jesus wants to bring into our lives. And let me just read this whole little section here for you and see how this death of Jesus and this life of Jesus is intertwined with one another. Beginning at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might, have, might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Got it? I tell you, I've read this, you know, a thousand times. And when you read it all together like that, you're going, what, what? Death, life, resurrection, what? What is, what is going on? I mean, let me just say that verse 11 is really the summary of everything that he was saying in those verses that I read leading up to it. That we are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to consider ourselves? That word consider can be translated reckon, or regard ourselves, or credit ourselves. That word is, in its exact form, is only, it only shows up two other times in the whole New Testament. It shows up in John chapter 11 and verse 50, and it's translated, it's translated take into account Take into account that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that still is a little bit blurry for me. The other place it's found is in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul gets done listing all of these positive things, like, you know, whatever is good and whatever is right, whatever is noble and all those things. And then he ends that whole section by saying, dwell on these things. Dwell on is the exact same word as consider. And I really like that description, that we are to dwell on the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're to dwell on the fact of the finality of his death, and we're to dwell on the fact of the newness of his life. And so let's first talk about, or, or um, well, let me, before I get to the finality of his death, I want to say uh, that we, we should not dwell on sin itself, that we should not dwell on the things that bring us down, that we don't obsess with our sinful desires, we don't obsess with our sinful thoughts, we don't obsess with our uh, sinful attitudes, and that we just haven't had victory over them. But we focus our attention on the, first of all, the finality of, of his death. When we think about sin in our life and the thing that gets us separated from God, we must focus on the finality of his death. When Jesus was on the cross, when he was hanging on that cross, all of our sins were laid on him. Isaiah 53, 6. The weight of our sins, the curse of our sins, the intense wrong of us all, he was infested with it. He carried it all on himself. And then it says in verse 5, back in verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then jump down to verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So you picture that all of the weight, all of the sin is on Jesus when he is dying. But at the very, remember what he said at the very end of his time on the cross? 
at the very end, right before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. I've carried this now, and I'm going to die in this moment. It is finished. The moment that he breathed his last and he died, the weight of that sin, the curse of that sin, when he was then alive in spirit, was gone. It was gone. It had been paid for. It was completely gone. Sin and its destruction, the grip of it, the enticingly harmful nature of it, was no longer on him anymore. For he who has died is freed from sin. That is why Paul says in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Just like Jesus was freed from the grip and the power of sin in his death, so we too can consider ourselves, we are no longer in the grip and the power of the sin in our life because Jesus took it upon himself. So we, we focus on, it, he, he took it with his death. It's the finality of his death. And then we focus, secondly, on the newness of his life. The newness of his life. When we focus, when we think about how is God going to bring transformation in my life, the finality of his death and the newness of his life. Jump back to verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, get this, so we too might walk in newness of life. Do you feel like you're walking in newness of life today? Or are you walking with the weight of sin? What kind of life are we living? Well, jump down to verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, here's what Jesus lives for, he lives to God. Jesus is alive to give us a newness of life. He is alive to give us an abundant life. He is alive so that we might know a new night. We are new creatures. This life that we live, we live with him. That we might live this newness of life, verse 8, that we also might live with him. And with him, we live for the same purposes that he lives for, which is we live unto God, or we live for God's honor. And therefore, Paul sums it up at the end of verse 11, that even though consider yourselves dead to sin, but then he says, but alive to God. We're living for God. We're living unto him in or with Christ Jesus. Have you ever shot a .30-06 rifle? Anybody? Sweet. I shot one too. Matter of fact, the first time that I shot a 30 out 6 I had just gotten my Gun Hunter Safety Course certificate, and I was 12 years old, and uh, I actually wanted to shoot my dad's 30 out 6 It was like the biggest, you know, most powerful gun out there that, I, that my dad owned, and I wanted to shoot it. So he took me out uh, by this dirt hill and set up a target, and we walked back, a, I don't know, 100 yards or so, a little bit of a distance, and, uh, and he had me hold it. Now, I'm 12. I weigh about 30 pounds. 
little scrawny guy, and I'm holding up this big old gun, you know, and, uh, and I'm trying to look through the scope. And so my dad's concept of how to look through a scope is you got to keep both eyes open. Your one eye that's not looking through the scope is looking down your field of vision, and your other eye looking in the scope to get those crosshairs right on your target. So I'm holding it up, and I do what a 12-year-old does. I close one eye. He's like, no, 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 you got to open both eyes. So I'm opening both eyes. I'm with this eye trying to look in the scope, and everything is like right up close. And with this eye, everything is super far away. And I'm thinking, okay, and I'm trying to look at, at it with, with both eyes, but literally, like, I just got to tell you, it is impossible to focus both close and far at the same time. Now, maybe you dudes and dudettes who shot your 30 6 with that high-powered scope on it can do this. I cannot. And so I'm wiggling away, you know, and trying to aim, trying to hold it, and all of a sudden I just pull the trigger, and literally my arm fell off. <laughs> that bad boy knocked me, you know, back, and I had this huge bruise on my shoulder for like, 14 months, I mean, it was, it had, it had a bit of a kick, I'm just saying. And I said to my dad, okay, I'm good, I don't have to shoot that anymore. I got a feel for it, I'm fine, I'm fine. That idea that it's impossible to focus on two things at once is a biblical truth right out of Romans chapter 6. We cannot at once both focus on our sin and how it has captured us, how it holds us, how it, how it doesn't let us go. It's got a grip on us. We can't keep focusing on just how bad I am, just how bad I am, while at the same time keep our crosshairs on this newness of life that Jesus wants to give us. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin. Jesus took it with him on the cross, and just like Sin did not hold him anymore, and the finality of his death, sin cannot hold us anymore. And so we focus on being alive to God, that I am living unto God, and I'm living with my Savior Jesus, that he's the one that will help me along. He will give me this newness of life. He will, he will rescue me from this sin in my life. And here's how this metamorphosis works. Here's how Jesus works it in us. First of all, sin originates in the soul, in the immaterial part of us, and then it's snuffed out in the body. That our physical body basically takes sin away from us. God uses our physical body to snuff sin out in our lives. Let me read it to you here in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Its lusts are internal. Its lusts are in our mind. Its lusts are in our, our, our appetites. Its lusts are in our, our hearts. But verse 13 says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see these members of our body? The members of our body is our physical members, you know, like our arms and our eyes and our mouth and our hands and our, our, all, of a, all of the parts of our body. But this, it says, 
they are instruments, do not present them as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them as instruments, present them to God as instruments of righteousness. This word instruments, by the way, interesting word. It only shows up five times in the entire Bible, in the, in, in the Greek language. And the other four times, three of the four, it's translated weapons. And the fourth place, it's translated armor. Weapons and armor. And for some reason, our English translators decided that in this text, we're going to call it instruments. I personally like the, the concepts and, and the accurate understanding of that Greek word as weapons. That this, this is a military term. That we don't present our members of our body as weapons for unrighteousness, but we present them as weapons for righteousness. That God would change these weapons of unrighteousness, these things in my life that, that, that seem to you know, get in the way, that seem to get in the way of this close relationship. It seems like they're weapons against God and for unrighteousness. And Lord, no, Lord, I want them to be weapons for you. And so let me, let me share with you how this plays out says that lust begins internally. So let's talk about like the lust of the eyes. Like we lust after something or after someone with our eyes. So how do we snuff this out? Well, we present our eyes to the Lord. We say, and I like to say it out loud because this is like a physical fleshly fight. I say, Lord, I give you my eyes. Right now, they're instruments of unrighteousness. They're weapons for unrighteousness. I give you my eyes. Change them from weapons of unrighteousness into weapons of righteousness so that when I look at things and when I look at people and when I look at the world around me, I'm seeing it with righteous eyes, not unrighteous eyes. I'm seeing it the way you want me to see it. Or, you know, these hands, they, they can really harm others. Or change my hands. From weapons that hurt to weapons that heal. Lord, Lord um, this mouth of mine, it has some appetites that I know you don't want it to have. And so I give you my taste buds, or I give to you my tongue, or I give to you my mouth. And I pray, Lord, that you would transform my appetites uh, that my mouth desires from from weapons of unrighteousness, things that are bad, that are destructive, into a mouth that, that, well, that really wants that which is good. And speaking of the mouth, Lord, things come out of my mouth that I know do not bring you honor. It's like a weapon for unrighteousness, the things that I say. Maybe foul language, maybe lies, maybe whatever it is, deception of some, Lord, change my Change my mouth so that when I speak, I speak righteously, not unrighteously. You, you get the picture? You know what I'm trying to say? So it's snuffed out. This internal sin that happens is actually attacked by our physical body. That God uses our physical body to snuff it out. That's why it says in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. It is God's grace he working in us that changes us because of his goodness that transforms us that brings about a metamorphosis it is fascinating to watch and it's fascinating to be a part of he goes on in verse 15 what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace may it never be so, kind of sounds like 
the beginning that we, we were reading, uh, verses 1 and 2. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? As we see ourselves as slaves, we need to realize that whoever we choose to be a slave of, they become our master, and our master then decides our destiny. And so if we choose to be, have sin be our master, we need to realize that that leads to death, it says. Sin, when sin is our master, it leads to death. Death in the Bible always talks about separation. Some sort of death is going on. Death of relationships, death of a walk with Jesus being his companion, death of honoring God. What dies when we sin? When we allow sin to be our master? Or we allow God to be our master. Obedience unto him, which leads to righteousness. Which leads to right living before him. Being truly alive. Living life as God intended us to live. With Christ unto God. Uh, as I was studying, I was reading these next verses, and I thought, this is us. This is you guys. This is how I picture you. Kind of what Paul was saying. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You, we're committed, aren't we? You're, you're committed to, let's open up the Scriptures. Let's see what the Bible has to teach us. Let's make sure that we align our lives with what God says. Verse 18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness, slaves of right living, slaves that want to be in alignment with God, in alignment with His truth. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you pre presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, which I love that, so now, this is like right now, don't put it off until tomorrow. Hey, I'll, I'll, you know what, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll, I'll present myself to God tomorrow. I've got some other things right now that I'm... No, today, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in in sanctification right now present the members of our body to him lord transform me use my hands for your glory may my eyes look the way that you want me to look upon others and, and other things lord make my attitude take my take take my just take all of me every part of me god i want to present to you so that like a python squeezes the life out of its prey God might squeeze the life out of that wretched sin that so easily entangles us. He wants to just squeeze it out of us if we let him. And here's the benefits. Here's the benefits of metamorphosis. First of all, emancipation. Nice big word for us to kick around. Emancipation, it means to be set free from slavery. Interesting, we stay slaves and yet we're set free as slaves. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you know, um, we're freed from the Lord setting the standards for our lives. But then he goes on in verse 21, therefore what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you now are ashamed? For the outcome of those things, of sin in our lives, is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, emancipation, freed 
from the slavery of sin. You ever have that? For me, yeah, I've had it. Some of you know my story. I've been freed from drug addiction. I've been freed from alcohol addiction. I've been freed from cigarettes. I've been freed from the drive for promiscuity. I've been freed from foul language. God has set me free. And i got to tell you, He continues to be working on me. I'm not totally out of the woods and won't be until I'm in glory. And you're not either. But we can be in it and watch Him set us free from the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. It's laid out in, by the way, 1 John 2.16, those three areas where sin seems to capture us. He wants to set us free from these things. So we're not under law, but under grace. Has He set you free from anything? Can you tell your story of how He has changed your life? Well, not only are we set free from the bondage of sin, but we're set, we're set free to something. We're set free to sanctification. Sanctification is a personal dedication to the interests of God. That we are, that we are set free to live our life that ma- a life that matters for Him, set apart for Him. Again, verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and enslaved to God, get this, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. Dedication to the interests of God. That's what sanctification is. By the way, here's, here's, some, here's a, a warning for us. We can be like dedicated to the outward appearance of being set apart for God. So we can practice religion. We can be really busy in the church. We can practice rituals. And yet it's all external, looking good on the outside. But this dedication to his, to, to what matters to him is something that happens inside. God wants it to happen that is birthed out of a relationship with him, out of a close walk with him that we're set free from the power of sin for him, unto him. Which leads us to the third benefit, which is God relation. <laughs> Emancipation, sanctification, and God relation. This close relationship with him. For that's how this verse ends in verse 22. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and it ends this way. And the outcome? Eternal life. By the way, eternal life doesn't mean I go to heaven when I die. The biblical understanding of eternal life is that we enter into a relationship with God today, and that relationship lasts forever. Just read John 17, 3. You'll know that it's backed up biblically, and that's not the only place. Where it's not just in word or in theory, but we actually do have a warm, loving relationship with the God who created all things. And what gets in the way of that is sin. But he wants to emancipate us. He wants to set us free from the bondage of sin. And he wants to sanctify us. He wants to set us apart for him, for his honor. And he wants to draw us close that we may experience his love. That we may experience his grace. And then Paul sums it all up in the very last verse of of chapter 6. He says this in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This whole metamorphosis, this whole transformation, it is a gift from God. It's something that he wants to give to us. So I started by saying so many of us talk about wanting it. You know, we're in a big room like this, we want it. But why don't we receive this gift from the Lord? Why don't we see this transformation happening? Let me offer this challenge. Because as much as we love that he saved us by his grace and that we can know him personally, I'm afraid we love our sin more than him in the moment. When temptation draws us, I know we set a relationship with him aside. When our anger gets a hold of us, forget God for right now, I'm mad. When the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life wants to get a hold of us, I'm afraid, I, I'm, I'm going to guess I speak for all of us. I know I speak for me, and I'm sure I speak for you too. We say, God, I know this is a gift you're offering me in the moment of the temptation, but I'm going to set you aside, and I'm going to go after the temptation. So we need to make a decision. Do we actually want metamorphosis to happen? Do we want transformation to happen? Do we, do we really want to be freed from the slavery of sin? And if you answer it, yes. Because we all know that the wages of sin is death. Then we are to receive the free gift of God. The free gift of sanctification transformation, a metamorphosis, the free gift of God, which is found in this newness of life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to receive it today, brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope the answer is yes.